Good morning. I'm Emily. Um, I'm going to be reading from Psalm 5 this morning, um, the CSB version, if you want to follow along. Hear the word of God. For the choir director with the flutes, a psalm of David. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my sighing. Pay attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for I pray to you. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I plead my case to you and watch expectantly. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. The boastful cannot stand in your sight. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who tell lies. The Lord abhors violent and treacherous people. But I enter your house by the abundance of your faithful love. I bow down toward your holy temple in reverential awe of you. Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my adversaries. Make your way straight before me. For there is nothing reliable in what they say. Destruction is within them. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. Punish them, God. Let them fall by their own schemes. Drive them out because of their many crimes, for they rebel against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them shout for joy forever. May you shelter them, and may those, who's, may those who love your name boast about you. For you, Lord, bless the righteous one. You surround him with favor like a shield. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father God, um, King Jesus, Holy Spirit, would you come? Um, God, I'm, I'm so grateful for this space this morning. I pray that as we enter into this time, um, that you just make it a place of peace, a place of refreshment, a place where we can feel truly filled. Um, That's what we're here to do today. Help us to open our hearts and our minds to be filled, to receive what you might have for us, the abundance of your faithful love, God. Help us to receive that, um, to receive your truth, Um, I ask for all of us in this room uh, to be inspired by your word, to revive us, and um, just take up true joy. Thank you so much for speaking to us and for being present. We love you. Amen. Thanks so much for your ministry, Emily. 
So if you haven't already, please do turn to Psalm 5 so that you can follow along with us. If, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there are Bibles in some of the chairs in front of you. And if you're looking for Psalm 5, you can turn to page 473 and you'll find it there. I can remember a number of years ago being in a really difficult spot with some of the close relationships, some of the closest relationships that Susan and I shared with some others, and we'd spent a good deal of time talking it through and, and trying to figure out the conflict and what was going on, and, and we were just coming up with nothing for, you know, what to do next. And the weight of it was only increasing the more that we talked about it. My parents' home in north-central Minnesota has long served as a refuge for us. That's partly because of its location, nestled as it is in the, on the shores of Rabbit Lake, out in the woods, miles away from any town or city. It's quiet. You ever had a place like that? Allows for reflection and pondering. I love it because I can just stare out at the lake and the loons. Birds, not the people in the boats on the lake. <laughs> More importantly, it has been a refuge to us because my parents are there. My dad is there. And when I'm in trouble, even at 54, I still call my dad. And when the situation is dire, it calls for a face-to-face -face meeting. You know what I mean? Have you been in a situation like that? I just needed in this moment, in this difficult spot, to sit on the deck with my dad face to face, to look into his eyes and lay out before him what was going on. Why? Because I trust my dad. He's got resources of wisdom that I do not, and he'll tell it to me straight. His words are sound and true. And because I respect my dad, he's a man of integrity, grit, hard work, and extensive experience. And all of that pulls from me like this reverence and awe of my dad, of who he is and all that he's accomplished. And, and I want to go to my dad because I know that my dad loves me. Even if what I lay out for him is partly my fault, even if I should have made different decisions or taken different actions, I know that with my dad, there is no shaming, there is no blaming, there is no finger pointing, but welcome and acceptance. I'll get a hearing. He'll carefully listen to me. I know that with my dad, I'm safe. I'm really blessed to have a dad like that, aren't I? And that time on the deck with him a few years ago, sitting down and talking with him, spending a weekend in that place of refuge with he and my mom, and it got us through. And it wasn't the first time, probably won't be the last. You know, earthly fathers, though imperfect, have the, have the potential to be a reflection of what we have, who we have in our heavenly father. Because all those who believe in Jesus not only have their sins forgiven, I mean, that's important and it's huge and it's critical, but we also get a father. 
We are adopted into a family. And because God is our father, we can go to him in the same way that I go to my dad. The churchy word for this is prayer. But prayer is merely a conversation. It's sitting down with God in the same way that I did with my dad to lay some things out, to get counsel, to seek help, and to work things through. Now, because we don't have another person sitting across from us on the deck overlooking the lake or in our kitchen or in our bedroom or living room or alongside us on a walk, well, prayer can be difficult. Would you agree? Prayer can be hard. Isn't it amazing how something that's like so simple, just talking, can be hard? Which is why we need help with this prayer thing. It's why we need a guide to show us how it's done. It, often, often we lose our way in prayer, even though maybe we've been a Christian for decades. And we need a refresher. And that's why we have the Bible. And that's why we have Psalm 5. You know, we're not really sure what the issue was for King David when he wrote this psalm. We, we can't be sure what trial he was experiencing, who he was up against. But I think that's actually a good thing because it allows us, it allows this psalm to open up and to be for us a, a kind of prayer, prayer tutorial for whatever ails us. It's a way forward when we're about to sit down with our Father and we're not sure where to begin, what to say, how to lay it out, how the conversation should go. Anybody ever feel that way with God? You should all be saying yes or you're lying. <laughs> Goodness, I, I feel this way often in prayer. Let me dispel any aura that you have that pastors are somehow far more spiritual than you. We're not. We're just other dudes trying to fight our way one step closer to Jesus. And I haven't felt, honestly, I haven't felt lately like a very good conversation partner with God, with my father. And David's example, it has been, it, it is being, <laughs> because I'm not there yet, I haven't arrived, even though I'm standing here about to preach it to you. It's been an example to me a model for me. So let's take a look together, shall we? That's Psalm 5. Let's eavesdrop on David's conversation because that's what we're doing. And we have the opportunity to listen and to learn here. And we're going to see four things, four things about prayer from this little psalm. I have Dale Ralph Davis to thank for this little outline. So good that I just ripped it off from him. Prepare your prayer, verses 1 to 3. Know your God, verses 4 to 6. Make your request, verses 7 to 9. And declare your confidence, verses 10 to 12. So first, prepare your prayer. Listen to my words, Yahweh. Consider my sighing. Pay attention to the sound of my cry. My King and my God, for I pray to you. In the morning, Yahweh, you hear my voice. In the morning, I, I plead my case to you and I watch expectantly. King David is sitting down with his father, his king, and his God. It's as if he's on that back deck overlooking Rabbit Lake saying, you know, God, here's what I'm thinking. I, I, here's why... 
Here's why I've taken this time to come to you this morning. In other words, David has thought this through before he begins the conversation. David is showing us, prepare your prayer. And the first thing in preparing our prayer is reminding ourselves of who we're talking to. This isn't just anyone to David or to us. He's going to, see what he says? My king and my God. Yahweh is the king, which means he's the sovereign, which means his rule and reign, his power over his kingdom and everything in it are absolute. And that, if you think about that for a minute, that is a stunning thought on its own. But it's not just something that is out there. The king isn't just kind of out there. This is a particular sovereignty to David. This king, says David, is my king, which means that his sovereignty has particularity and import for his life and for our lives. And Yahweh is God. God. Not a God. The God. Not a God of human making or crafting, but the immortal, invisible, immutable, infinite, impartial, creating, Trinitarian, holy, righteous, merciful, gracious, eternal, foreknowing, foreordaining, faithful, jealous, just, long-suffering, truthful, self-existent, self-sufficient, wise, omnipotent, omniscient, omniscient, omnipresent, transcendent, living and loving God. And this God is not a God in the abstract, you know, out there. For David, he says, this God is my God, personal, connected, knowable, relatable, willing to sit down for the conversation and bring all of his godness to it. Maybe you didn't know that this phrasing is the same phrasing that Jesus used when addressing God. It is the Hebrew equivalent, my God, of what we read in Mark's story of Jesus when, when Jesus himself was in a really lousy situation. Can you imagine what that situation was? Headed to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when Jesus puts his face in the dust in that garden, he says, you remember it? Abba, Father. That's the same thing that David is saying here just in Hebrew phrasing. My God, Abba. You see, David has prepared his prayer by being clear who he's talking to and the kind of relationship that he has with him. And note also how he's decided to talk with his king and his God. One author points out the progression in David's preparation. This is so good, you guys. David's prayer consists of spoken words, verse 1a, but also of broken words, verse 1b. He comes with desperate words, verse 2a, and prepared words. Spoken words and broken words. Have you ever talk to someone that way? Have you ever had someone talk to you that way? You know how it is. Some of the words come out clear and strong. You understand them. 
And then in the intensity of the conversation and the way that those words represent, the words start to trail off and they're just so laden with emotion. It's almost like they fall to the floor before they can get to your ear. It's, it's kind of mumbling under their breath. And you're like, wait, what, what was that? What did you say? Broken words. The, the CSB, CSB renders it sighing. Have you ever sighed? Have you ever received a sigh from someone else? Now, you don't just hear a sigh, right? You feel a sigh. You know, it doesn't take but a couple of seconds to picture many of your stories that produce sighing. The wife among us who's lost a husband far too soon, trying to make her way the best that she can with her kids. Now a single mom, it wasn't in the plan, trying to create new memories, a new life. Or the sister who has had yet another surgery and yet again begins the process of recovery or, or the dad who loves the difficult child through crisis after crisis. Or the spouse caring for their mate whose memory is slowly ebbing away or the sisters, plural, sisters among us fighting cancer and the brothers, plural, among us doing the same and all of us with the weight of our own personal failures and mistakes and sin and shortcomings. All of it produces sighs, groans, cries. I just spoke to someone coming in the door this morning and he said, there's not one person in there who's probably not hurting. He's so right. Broken words that lead to desperate words. And so we plea, pay attention to the sound of my cry, my God and my King. And yet for all of this emotion, for all of the spoken words and broken words and desperate words, David still comes with prepared words. In the morning, I plead my case to you. One thinks of an attorney getting ready for closing arguments. The facts are laid out. The argument is made. A clear result is prepared for. The verb David uses here means to set out in order or to arrange in rows. It's, it's most often used in relationship to the priesthood of God. You can read about it in Leviticus where they, they lay out the wood, right? And then they lay out in order the pieces of the animals on that wood. I love how Eugene Peterson renders this verse. I lay out the pieces of my life on your altar and I watch for fire to descend. And Dale Ralph Davis gets up in our collective grill when he says this. We find too little of this kind of preparation and ordering in the church. We don't order our prayers. We simply start in with our religious rattling and our easy Christian cliches. We just want to thank you, Lord. We're just really glad to be here. We just, you know, we just ask you, Lord, to just give us like a really good time in your presence. Just, you know, help us to worship and, and we'll be careful to give you all the glory and, and honor, blah, blah, blah. I suppose some might call this free prayer. 
It's certainly free, but I doubt it's prayer. There is a difference between prayer and drivel. I do not want to advocate for eloquence in prayer, but I want to reject thoughtlessness in prayer. All right. I really considered whether or not I should read that quote to you. Because that can sting a little, right? Maybe you feel stung. I felt stung when I read that. I wanted to push back on Mr. Davis. But I think we need to hear what he has to say. I know for me, and, and I would be pretty sure that it's the case with you too, we can grow lazy in prayer. It's just our relationship, and again, see, I want to I pull that churchy word prayer away from it and insert conversation and relationship with God because just like any other relationship, right, you can get lazy in your relationship with your friends. You can get lazy in your relationship with your spouse and having good, deep, intentional conversations. And in the same way, we can get lazy in our conversations with God. We can say the same things over and over. Those Christian cliches that he mentions. We can use lots of filler words like, I pray, I pray, I pray, I just, I just, I pray, and so on. Have you ever found yourself doing that? I mean, when you talk to your wife, do you say, I'm going to say, hey, I had a good day today. I say, I had a really fun time down there at the river. I say, I ate up, right? Like we just, there's all this stuff and filler in there and it takes the naturalness out of just talking with our father. And instead of preparing for the conversation of being thoughtful and natural in that way with what we want to say and how we want to say it, We're not intentional like we would be with an earthly father or friends. David says, in the morning, I will set in order my requests to you and I will watch expectantly. So we we prepare our prayers and then know your God, verse four to six. There's a reason that David watches and waits expectantly because he has an expectation of what God will do based on his knowledge of who God is. This is David's second lesson in the tutorial of how to have a conversation with God. Know your God. It's bound up in that little word for at the beginning of verse four. So let's take it from verse three. In the morning, I plead my case to you. I've ordered my prayer and I watch expectantly for or because You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. The boastful cannot stand in your sight. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who tell lies. You abhor Yahweh, violent and treacherous people. You see, David believes that something will happen because he knows who God is. God doesn't socialize with the wicked. He doesn't invite evil over as a house guest. Arrogant people filled with swagger and braggadocio will quickly find themselves laid out in front of God. And he hates all evildoers. Wait, what? Wait wait a second. I thought we were supposed to hate the sin and love the sinner. Because that's what God always does. But this verse blows up this kind of a notion of how God thinks of sin and those who carry it out. Yes, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, but if rejected, God is clear. I despise 
and abhor sin and wickedness. I cannot and will not tolerate sin or its perpetrators. I hate sin and rebellious sinners. For those who rebel actively and vigorously against God, they will find no tame God, no wishy-washy God, no indecisive God here. No, God will destroy those who speak lies. This is as we observed last week. Words can kill. They can kill figuratively when one person directs them at another person. They, They can kill relationships and reputations and your rest. Sometimes they can kill literally because of what deception can cause others to do. And even more dangerously, David is reflecting on the fact that words can kill because leveled and used in such a way, they will bring the execution of justice by a holy God who will eternally destroy lie speakers. And God doesn't merely abhor, right? Do you know what that word means? Abhor. We don't use it very often. It it means to have disgust or or hatred, or or to find something repugnant. He he doesn't just abhor violence and treachery. He abhors violent and treacherous people. As one commentator notes, we do not pray to a bland blob. Yahweh has a certain and very clear character. Family, David knows his God. He understands what God loves and what God hates, which builds a certain expectation for how God will act, which is really exciting, right? Like he knows what God's going to do and he can align his requests along that character. When, so that when David sees a certain kind of person, gets into a certain kind of dangerous or lousy situation, this knowledge of God brings a kind of confidence to his praying of what God will do and how he will respond to his requests. So now we need to apply this, right? So we need this kind of knowledge of God so that we craft our conversation in line with what we know about God. And that's not a bad thing. That's not a manipulative thing. It's a good thing. We do this naturally in our relationships in the way that we operate. When meeting with someone for the first time, maybe, maybe someone that you're hoping to influence, don't you ask someone else what they're like? How they kind of operate? This is how I operate all the time in the corporate world. If I was going to have a meeting with a number of people, I wanted to know what their interests were, what their aims were, what their objectives were, so that I could respond to them in a certain and given way. When I was looking for a job, I tried to find the hiring manager and what they were about so that I could respond in a certain way. You see, so it is with God. Our knowledge of God is a springboard into our conversations with Him. When we know who He is and when we understand His character, we can shape our words and our requests to fall in line with His character and be confident of how He will respond. We can pray for liars' mouths to be shut because we know He hates lies and liars. We can pray for human traffickers to be destroyed because we know he hates subjugation and oppression. We don't have to say, God, if it's your will, take out people who afflict others. I know that's his will. So I can just pray, God, do it. 
We can pray for the deliverance of our brothers and sisters in places like North Korea, China, Central Asia, and the Middle East because we know that God has said he has seen the affliction of his people and he desires to set them free. So prepare your prayers. Know your God. And then make your request. Verse 7 and 9. But I enter your house by the abundance of your faithful love. I bow down toward your holy temple in reverential awe of you. (laughs) I think this is my favorite part of the whole psalm, right here in verse 7. Because, listen, look at this now. It forms the foundation of our approach to our God. You see, I think it would have been reasonable for David at this moment to talk about how much he is not like the really evil and wicked people that he's just spoken of and that God hates in verses four through six. God, you know all about them, right? I mean, those are some really bad people. I mean, let's just be honest, God. There's some really bad people. But I, like I'm not nearly as bad or as wicked as those people, God. I am a righteous person. I am your king. I'm the one that you've chosen and appointed so I can be in your presence and with your people because I'm not a bad person like they are. He might have said that. But that's not what David says because David knows who he is. And he knows there is no basis whatsoever in his own life and works, and deeds for him getting to enter into the house of God and to be with God's people and to be in God's presence. David knows that he is separated from the evil people in verses four to six by a hair's breath. And so the only way that David can enter into the house of God is not based on who he is, but based on who God is. (laughs) I enter your house by the abundance of your faithful love. Hallelujah. In spite of all of our shortcomings, God lets us into his house and into his presence. We do not enter into this place based on our own religiosity and deeds and works. We enter into this place by grace. Amen? Here is the source, family, of great gladness among the gathering of the people of God in the house and the presence of a loving God And David shows us that this gladness that is here because we enter in because of God's love for us is also attended by great gravity. I bow down, he says, in your holy temple in reverential awe of you. You see, because of what we know of God, even in the midst of our intimacy with our Father, right? Even in the midst of that welcome and acceptance, There is a deep respect and reverential awe for God if we know God. It's just like how I feel about my dad. I mean, I'm in awe of my dad. I'm 54 and I I still keep asking, when am I going to grow up and be like him? When is that going to happen? I'm just in awe of him. And if I'm in awe of my earthly father that way, how much more my heavenly father to fall down on my knees in awe of this holy God. Is that not why we sing? Could you sing it with it? Can we sing in the middle of a sermon together? Who else commands all the hosts of heaven? 
Who else could make every king bow down? Who else can whisper and darkness trembles? Only a holy God. What other beauty demands such praises? What other splendor outshines the sun? What other majesty rules with justice? Only a holy God. Come and behold Him, the one and the only. Cry out, sing holy, forever a holy God. Come and worship a holy God. Amen. This is, family, this is why... I share with our worship leaders that I want our aim on a Sunday morning to be gravity and gladness, that that's what our services should just be shot through with, the weightiness of this holy God whom we approach that ought to drive us to our knees literally at times in reverential awe and in the same service, laughing, joy, rejoicing, mirth. I love that word, mirth. Doesn't it just make you smile when you hear it? Mirth. We should have jolliness and celebration because it is his great love that lets us in to this place. It is the abundance of his faithful love by which we are welcomed and accepted and heard and made safe. It's why I absolutely love this time together. I love this time together, you guys. I can't wait for Sunday morning to come. I'm just astounded by the love of God that lets me in and lets me be a part of this family. (laughs) I'm a part of Grace Church. I mean, I'm telling you guys, last Sunday, I don't know if you've ever had, it was so ironic to me that last Sunday I was preaching a psalm that says, I lay down in quietness and I sleep in peace. And I got an hour of sleep last Saturday night. I was tossing and turning. I was just all roiled up and there was this anxiety in me. And I got up at 4 a.m. I didn't wake up. I was already awake. Got out of bed. At 4 a.m., I I made my smoothie. I went down into the living room. I opened the Bible. I got into Lamentations. And do you know what I saw? Your mercies are new every morning. And great is your faithfulness. And you know what I immediately thought of when I thought of his faithfulness to me? I thought of the fact that I was going to get to come to this place with Jim and George, and I was going to get to sit in my study and pray with them. And then I was going to get to come into this room like I did this morning and run through this service with our worship team, and then we were going to pray together. And then those doors were going to open back there, and I was going to get to walk out, and I just pictured that lobby like it was this morning, right? Like the sun coming in, I'm standing out there with Kevin and Suzette just greeting you people. I could see your faces last Sunday morning in my mind's eye, the smiles and the laughing and catching up, and I haven't seen you this week, and we're just all together here and we're happy, and we get to meet this God. I love this place. I love Sunday morning. 
I mean, it's just so awesome. And all of that, like my spirits just kept going up and up and up and up. So before I even walked out the door at 10 after 7, I was so ready. And I didn't even feel tired anymore. That's what gravity and gladness founded in God, on God, and expressed by His people. This is the basis of our approach to God, these realities. And knowing this and living this, we're now ready to make the request. Verse 8, Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my adversaries. Make your way straight before me, for there is nothing reliable in what they say. Destruction is within them. Their, their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. You know, it wasn't until Thursday afternoon writing this sermon that it hit me what David just did right there. You see, I thought the request that he was going to make would be something about all the people all these evil people that were making his life really lousy. Like, that would make sense, right? Like, that would be the request. Like, wipe them out, and that's coming. But it's not the first thing that David asks of God. Rather, the request is about himself, and that is stunning to me. Because of my adversaries, he says, what I need you to do first is deal with me. Lead me in your righteousness. Make your way straight before me. You see, David is surrounded by some pretty bad blokes. Every word they speak is a landmine. Their lungs breathe out poison gas. Their throats are gaping graves from which spew feckless flatteries tossed by toxic tongues. In other words, David is in incredibly dangerous territory and company. And it would make sense that he would be tempted to respond in kind, their behavior a drag on his. But that could be and would be absolutely disastrous. Instead, this is so amazing, David prays like Jesus before Jesus. Just like you prayed earlier. Right? How did Jesus teach us to pray that you said? Protect us from the traps and snares that will get laid in the pathway that we're going to walk today. All those temptations. Protect me, God, and deliver me from the evil one. You see, David asked God to lead him like the good shepherd that he is. He's going to write Psalm 23. Lead me into paths of righteousness for your name's sake, O God. He asked God to put him on the straight and narrow As one author notes, listen to this, this is so good. Perhaps there is a subtle implication that in this mess that David is in, walking in righteousness is even more critical than walking in safety. You should write that down because that's a temptation for us. We think first about our safety. Protect me from them. Instead of God first, Make me righteous. That is far more important than any issue or circumstance that I'm dealing with. David knows that his heart is the issue. Make me righteous. Prepare your prayer. Know your God. Make your request. And now after David has worked through these steps, I believe, I'm sure his disposition has improved dramatically because he's worked this out, right? He's laid out the case. He's having a conversation with God. Don't you feel good when you get stuff off your chest? Now he's ready to declare his confidence. Verse 10 to 12. And this declaration comes in two steps. 
David will make a declaration against God's enemies and for God's family. (laughs) This is such a good model for prayer. We got to pray like Psalm 5, y'all. Verse 10. Now he's ready. Punish them, God. Let them fall by their own schemes. Let them just fall over on themselves. Let them implode on themselves. Drive them out because of their many crimes, for they rebel against you. Boy, David is not holding back now. He has let loose the ammo. He is unshakable in his belief in God. He's in no doubt about the guilt of the wicked. He's secure in his belief about what needs to happen because he's certain about the character of his God. So we can speak with confidence now. Punish them. Let them fall by their own schemes. Drive them out because of their many crimes. And I think part of why he is so confident in laying this out to his father is because, listen to what he's saying, it's not about him, but about his father. Because, do that, God, because they rebel against you. He's not all navel-gazing and wrapped up in himself. That is the issue. They deserve destruction because they've double-crossed the divine. And maybe we hesitate to pray this way. Maybe it makes us a bit uncomfortable, just like hearing about God's hatred for people in verses 5 to 6. But bear with me with one more quote from Ralph Davis. Here's what he says. We may wish prayer could be all courtesy and finesse. If so, we have no business messing with the Psalms. Prayer must often have a hard edge about it because it has to deal with evil. There's a ruggedness about true biblical piety. Why is the psalmist so ecstatic over Yahweh's coming to judge the earth? Because it means that at that time, he will put things right. Right? He he says, it says elsewhere in the scriptures, that he will judge the world with righteousness. And it's only when that happens that the cosmic party can begin. Right? You, You see, we have to pray against evil and see how David does that in verse 10 because it's only when the obstacle is removed that God can now make a way to answer our prayers for each other. Verse 11, but let all, so take them out. So now the way is open that so that all who take refuge in you will rejoice. Let them shout for joy forever. May you shelter them. And may those who love your name boast about you. May they shout and proclaim it from the mountaintops. For you, Yahweh, bless the righteous one. You surround him with favor like a shield. Here's where the prayer tutorial ends. This is what it's all been heading towards. This is what it's all been about. It's about rejoicing, joy, and favor. Isn't that awesome? Can you guys smile? Oh, thank you. (laughs) Right? Like, isn't it so great? I love how so often the Psalms end in our joy. That God wants us to be happy. That we can have fun. Fun is not a four-letter F word. You should be enjoying yourself in this world. 
You see, when you prepare your prayer and know your God and make your request based on his acceptance, welcome, hearing, and love, you are then taken to a place where you may declare your joyful confidence in a God and Father who shelters you with his favor. Worship team, would you come up? I read a story this past week. Here's how I want to end. I want to give you this story. It was told by Helmut Thielicke in his autobiography regarding an incident from his earliest school days. So Helmut was about 10 years old, and he and his classmates had taken an intense dislike of another lad in their class. This lad's name was Hans. Hans exuded a kind of lackadaisical attitude towards studies, and yet when he was asked a question in class, he could spout off absolutely everything someone might know about that topic. Did you ever have anyone in a class like that with you? Like, they were a little frustrating, weren't they? Like, you're not even studying, and you just seem to know everything and every answer, and you're getting 100% on the test. For this and other quirks, Hans earned the ire of Philoki and his friends. Hence, they decided that the whole bunch of them needed to give Hans a good thrashing. But on the morning set for the ambush, a strange thing happened. Hans's father was walking with his son that day to school. His father was one of the most highly respected people in their town. And the, the gang, this little gang that had formed, noticed what happened when Hans and his father parted in front of the school. They saw how Hans, Hans's father stroked his hair, and patted him on the cheek, gave him a kiss on the forehead. And then several times as they parted ways, Hans and his father, they would each turn back to each other and look at each other and give a little wave. Several times before his father finally made it away around the bend. Thielicke said that he and his cohorts were so touched by this scene, they came to a collective, if unstated, conclusion. Whoever was loved so much by a father like that must stand under some kind of protection and could not be molested. They were gripped by awe of what they had seen, and so they left Hans alone. You surround him with favor like a shield. This is a picture of what it looks like to confidently wear the favor and welcome and acceptance and hearing love and protection of Yahweh our Father. Prepare your prayer. Know your God. Make your request. And then declare your confidence by standing and rejoicing.